Hey everybody, Stephen Clyde here. We've covered Afghanistan, we've covered Iraq, we've covered Syria. So today we're going to be covering Yemen with our good friend Kyle Anslone again, and he's going to be with us the next two days to finish out the week. Hope you guys enjoy it. The Peace and Liberty Podcast, episode 19. All right, Kyle, glad to have you back on, man. Uh, yeah, thanks for having me again, Stephen. How's it going? Oh, uh, it's going good. Um, we've had really successful past three days. Um, people have given great feedback, especially on that first episode we put out Monday. So we talked about Afghanistan. We talked about Iraq. And yesterday, me and Will talked about Syria. So today, me and you are going to talk about Yemen. And I'll just start off by saying I, I would not be able to point out Yemen on a map. And I think I'm not embarrassed because I think for most people, they wouldn't either. So I guess you're going to start off to show us the map and show us some things. And yeah, we'll get it going. Right. Uh, so start off with the map because that seems to be uh, you know what makes the most sense. So right here, if you look at the map, Yemen is located on the southeast corner of the Arabian Peninsula. It shares a border with Saudi Arabia and Oman. And uh, another interesting, uh, kind of important strategic position of Yemen is it occupies this strait that connects the Gulf of Aden and the Red Sea to the uh, and the Indian Ocean to the Red Sea and then to the Mediterranean. And so, if you're shipping something from, let's say, India into Europe, this would be one of the most efficient ways to go. Also, moving things up around Africa and stuff like that. Uh, so, you know, just to zoom in right here, and I just want to show how close. Yemen is to Djibouti. Uh, you know, this is the continent of Africa, and then this is Yemen. And so, uh, you know, the, it, it's a very, there, there's a lot of important traffic uh, that goes through these shipping lanes right here. And uh, Yemen is the poorest country in the Middle East, even though it sits on this spot, which should really, you know, be a point where they could maybe uh, gain some wealth and stuff. But Man, are the, they import a ton of their food prior to the war. I believe they imported around 90% of their staple foods. And uh, so, so things in Yemen have not been, uh, not been good with the war conditions. And who controls Yemen? So uh, uh, that's very complicated. So if you look at the map here, uh, for those of you who aren't looking at the map, I'll try to use directions. Uh, Yemen's kind of shaped like an uh, awkward rectangle. You know, there's some squiggles and stuff, but more or less a rectangle. So in the northeast corner of that rectangle, uh, you have the Houthis who control uh, from the border with Saudi Arabia all the way pretty close uh, now, actually. They've taken uh, almost all the way down uh, to the south of that country. However, uh, the the, uh, the Saudi-bat government that's, whose official leader is President Hadi uh, continues to control the key cities in South Yemen. Uh, and then Al-Qaeda and ISIS control a significant portion of territory in the more rural areas of uh, Yemen. However, at one point in the time, they did control a key oil port. I think it's uh, this one right here, Al-Mukayla, uh, but they no longer control that, and I think that's under pretty much UAE control at this point. Uh, the second capital city of Yemen, this capital city of southern Yemen, Aden, was actually taken by a group of southern separatists from the Saudi Bad Hadi government. So four different groups controlling territory in Yemen. 
Wow, yeah, that's really complicated. So I guess maybe you could just start off by giving us of like an overview of what we're going to talk about today. When did we, I, I think most people know what drone strikes are. And when we're talking about Yemen, we're talking more along the lines of drone strikes. And um, you were talking in your episode, I'm going to link to it, on your foreign policy focus episode 159, you kind of do like a Yemen cheat sheet episode. And you talk about how our politicians like Obama, we knew about Obama's kill list. And there was that one situation where he killed that one American guy. And even if he was a terrorist or not, just the circumstances were a bit odd. Maybe you could just touch on like how we found ourselves to like be involved with Yemen like we are today. So there's three separate wars going on in Yemen and the United States is fighting in two of them. One of those wars the United States is fighting in is a drone war uh, that the United States claimed is authorized by the 2001 authorization of use of military force and is fought against the jihadist, jihadist groups, Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula and the Islamic State affili affiliate in Yemen. Uh, it, something important to note here is that unlike in Syria and Afghanistan, where the uh, ISIS aren't allied with the other Sunni groups, in this case, ISIS is allied with Al-Qaeda and the Arabian Peninsula. AQAP is known as uh, one of, if not the most dangerous terrorist cell in the world. Uh, they're known as a group that plots attacks to come to America and more 9-11 style attacks where you have ISIS that will maybe call on, you know, the uh, Bad Daddy will put out a podcast saying that jihadists of America rise up and go shoot up your local church or whatever the hell. Um, AQAP will actually plan to try to put operatives in the U.S., have those operatives gain uh, some sort of weapons and then use those weapons in a coordinated way. Uh, so, you know, these attacks if they're successful, you know, could cause catastrophic damage like you, you saw with 9-11. Uh, whereas, you know, while, while, you know, the, I guess the ISIS attacks have been successful in a lot of very disturbing ways uh, for, for, you know, what they're trying to accomplish, uh, it's not quite as coordinated. If, I, I hope that made sense. Yeah, definitely, definitely. So when we, so would you say like 2011, you know, after um, September 11th, let's start there. When did we start seeing the drone attacks um, that started to hit Yemen? Was that actually much later or is 2011 around where we start our story here? So I think actually 2002 is yeah. when Bush started the drone program in Yemen. Um, it, it, the Bush drone program was shrouded in a lot more secrecy than the Obama program. So in, in somewhat typical government fashion, uh, the, the one admission, uh, administration will do it covertly, and then the next administration will do it overtly, right? Um, so for Bush, it was somewhat secretive. I don't think he carried out many drone strikes in Yemen. I don't think uh, that uh, President Bush really uh, embraced the use of drone technology all that much. Uh, just in general, especially as compared to Obama, even though he did use it. Uh, other parts of the United States strategy during the Bush administration uh, was the president of Yemen at the time, uh, Ali Abdullah Saleh, uh, who most people just call Saleh, um, was uh, brought into really the U.S. orbit, had several high-level meetings with U.S. officials, including Condoleezza Rice and George W. Bush, and they were, you know, sold American weapons and given American weapons and training, et cetera, uh, as part of counterterrorism missions. And this and is this is important because when did Salah come in? What was that? Well, what year did Salah come in? 
Because I know, I think oh, it was- he was the only president of Yemen ever up until 2012. Uh, so prior to 1990, Yemen was actually divided into North and South Yemen. A uh, North Yemen more or less resembled the territory that the Houthis control today, and South Yemen uh, was actually in the Soviet orbit, and there are still communist, uh, you know, sympathizers or people who want communist government within Yemen. Uh, so, but Saleh was, became president, more or less dictator when he united the country. At some point in there, he started having elections to, I guess, uh, as like a, a ceremony for his rule, but <laughs> yeah. it, it wasn't a real kind of thing. Uh, and then in 2011, when the Arab Spring came to Yemen, of course, this is a revolution across the Middle East and uh, saw the fall of dictators in Libya, Tunisia, Egypt and Yemen. Uh, and so Saleh was forced to resign at that time. And that's when Hadi uh, was appointed president. And then Hillary Clinton helped arrange a one man election, in which Hadi won in 2012. And the US endorsed and sanctioned the election in the international community, even though he was only na- name on the ballot. I don't know if this is forcing us to skip too far ahead, but Salah was actually killed this last December. Um, I don't know if that's better to, to leave off for later, but what happened with that? Yeah, let's definitely get to that later and finish okay. up this drum piece first. Right. right. Uh, during the Obama years in the drone war and what you referenced, uh, Obama you know, is kind of known as the drone president. And I think this is a very fitting title. Not only he did he do atrocious things with the U.S. Dro- drone program, but uh, amidst to carrying out over 500 strikes, uh, I, I forget what the civilian numbers that Obama admits to, but they're pretty low. And it's hard to know exactly how many strikes they did carry out because a lot of them are uh, shrouded in so much classification and secrecy and they just don't admit to it. Uh, But over 500 total, and this is between Yemen, uh, Pakistan, Libya, etc. Some of those Obama policies I just want to touch on were the signature strikes, which meant that they would carry out a strike on a target, wait 10 to 15 minutes and hit that again. So what happens in the first 10 to 15 minutes after an explosion? Family members, first responders, you know, passers-by, good Samaritans rush to the scene and attempt to dig out bodies and make sure that because it's not unlikely that one of these drone strikes blows up a school or something like that. And so people are rushing to the scene trying to help out, and then another drone strike comes in, and all those people end up dead too. And so that was a long-time policy. I think the Obama administration kind of said they weren't doing that near the end of his term. Uh, But I just read a story that came out a few weeks ago where uh, the Trump administration, of course, authorized a drone strike that killed a 13-year-old boy in rural Yemen. Uh, In that drone strike, his 19-year-old cousin was pretty badly wounded. And I guess when first responders first came on the scene, they were very nervous about approaching him and, you know, rushing to save this, you know, kid who's bleeding his life because they were afraid that they would be hit by another strike. Uh, Another, go ahead. Oh, no, I just said, wow. (laughs) Go ahead. (laughs) Uh, Another Obama policy in Yemen that was, uh, like, again, they they said it was revised near the end of Obama's term, but I really don't think it effectively was. And as they treated anybody killed in a drone strike that was a fighting age male, so probably 15 and up, as somebody who was uh, a militant. And therefore, you know, their their death didn't matter, right? They would count them. This is skewing the civilian death numbers. 
Well, not only is it skewing the civilian death numbers, but it's justifying the slaughter of Yemen's young men. Right. Yeah. It, I, I read a story. This was about Afghanistan, but similar policy. And that is, uh, if you're in Afghanistan, you're like a field worker, and you know you're maybe taking a smoke break with your buddies and you know eating lunch or whatever. And if a drone or a plane flies over, everybody scatters because a group of five guys standing together looks too suspicious and worthy of an airstrike. And so, you know, I just want to like show through some of this the psychological conditionings that these policies have on the people first responders not rushing to the aid of a wounded and dying man uh men scattering uh like you know roaches when our planes fly overhead is this who we want to be right oh i I don't think people can even fathom that i mean we're so used to our you know fairly peaceful lives in the u.s that we don't even have to think about this stuff and uh, it's pretty easy to justify if you think you're at war with these people and you don't think anything you do to them causes their anger. Uh, that's a, It's pretty delusional, but this is what most people are fed and what mo- most people are fed to believe. Right. And, and whenever they talk about these weapons uh, or about the missions themselves, they will call them surgical strikes, signature strikes, precision strikes, targeted strikes. So everybody's just like, oh, well, they're just killing the bad guys, of, yeah. of course. Sometimes the surgical strike blows up a school. Uh, so, you know, then what? And also, uh, just to add to that, for the people on the ground, remember what we call these weapons, right? These are predator drones that are fl- firing Hellfire missiles. You know, how does that feel when you're on the receiving side of that? You know, I mean, on the American side, I guess you'd be like, oh, that sounds real cool. But, man, I, you know, it, it just se- it seems so terrible and cynical to the people on the ground, I'm sure. And it's just totally perpetual because, you know, me and Will are talking about yesterday, and I think we talked about this the other day, that a lot of these terrorists, they're usually educated, middle class, and they know what they're doing, and they probably had someone in their family that died in one of these attacks. Right. Or, you know, they witnessed the results of the attacks or anything. I mean, imagine coming upon an attack where three children were blown apart by a bomb. Uh, you know what? Let's let's just go on to the next one real quick. Uh, we had the targeted drone program of Barack Obama, and this was where he put together kill lists, judge, jury, and executioner, and uh, conducted targeted drone strikes against an American civilian, Anwar al-Awlaki, who didn't oppose an Im- imminent threat to the United States. I guess in some ways you could argue that he was an enemy combatant to America, maybe, as he was a member of al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula and was a terrorist. However, he wasn't, you know, actively going to kill Americans or anything like that. But Obama had him drone bombed. And then a couple weeks later, so this is important to remember, father's already dead. Another Obama drone strike kills his 16-year-old son, who's also an American citizen. Uh, I I postponed the other thing because the story goes that this uh, young man was only identified after they found a clump of skull and hair that resembled his. And so imagine what it must be like for these family members who have to go through and look at their children's body parts to try to determine if they were dead. I, 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 and, I can't that, imagine that, how horrifying yeah. that would be. Oh, just absolutely. I'm just fast forwarding a little bit. And, and we're, we're referring back to your uh, foreign policy focus episode 159. You referred to a Bloomberg article and this article is pretty great. And your, your point of discussing the article wasn't to agree with everything, but just to notice that it did point out a lot of things we can talk about, we can agree or disagree. One thing it talks about, one section is how bad has it gone for civilians? It says the death toll from fighting so far is estimated at 10,000. 
compared to 470,000 that died in the seven years of the civil war in Syria. So it, has it gotten worse or I, it was this article actually pretty recent? I didn't look at the date. So I, the article was pretty recent, but anybody who's actually an a, an a worker in Yemen could tell you uh, they have no idea how many people have died from the conflict in the war. Uh, and that also doesn't include the numbers of the, the drone war numbers. That would just be from the Yemen civil war, uh, probably 2015 and on since Saudi got involved. Um, I believe is where they get that statistic. So something I, we'll get into a little bit more with the humanitarian crisis, but in Yemen, a lot of hospitals, roads, and bridges have been destroyed, and they're only counting the uh, fatality numbers from people who are actually able to make it to the hospital. So if you live somewhat in rural Yemen, and they destroy the bridge that gets you to the nearest hospital, it could be 10 hours. I think as Will Porter lays out in his article, uh, uh, we should get this and link to it in the show notes page for people to read. Uh, but anyways, in that article, he lays out how... Uh, two-hour trip to the hospital suddenly turns into a 10-hour trip to the hospital when they blow up the roads and bridges. But, oh, yeah, there's not enough fuel in the country, so then it's going to take you, like, 20 hours to get there. And, uh, and and so if you don't get to that hospital and you die, then they don't count your death in those official tolls. And so the number's a lot higher. Uh, Yemeni journal, journalist Nasser Arabi, who lives in Sana, Yemen, and I guess I, I should qualify by saying he is somebody who uh, definitely has a bias towards the Houthis over the Saudi coalition, uh, says that 60 to 70,000 people by his counts uh, that he's been able to document, excuse me, have died in the war. So I'm looking at a map here and it looks like, and maybe we should distinguish this for the people, for the viewers real quick. There's the Houthis, which are backed by Iran. And then there are the, let's see here what I write down here. Uh, All right, can, th- we, th- can we hold on that real quick sure. and just yeah. finish up the drone thing real quick? Yeah, go uh, for it, go for it. This makes sense because we could uh, stay on the topic of Anwar al-Waki. Uh, Trump takes office in 2017, and al-Waki's eight-year-old daughter is visiting her grandmother in rural Yemen, and Trump orders a raid on that village that she's staying in. Uh, there wasn't any al-Qaeda in the village, and in fact, when the U.S. Army troops approached the village, uh, the, the people within the village thought that it was the Houthis uh, coming for them, who, as we'll get into in a second, the United States is actually fighting a war against in Yemen. So they thought these were American enemies coming over the hill, but when they're really Americans, uh, they get into a shooting fight, and, uh, you know, eight-year-old little American girl gets a bullet through the neck and bleeds out in, oh, in her grandmother's arms. Uh, wow. So, that you know, that's absolutely horrifying. Like I said before, the, the 13-year-old boy dying pretty recently, these drone strikes continue under Trump just like they did under Obama. I don't know, everybody likes to catastrophize Trump and, uh, you know, idolize Obama and pretend like, oh, this was a great man. And, you know, you know how he said, like, you know, Trayvon Martin could have been my son, but you know, Anwar Alaki's eight-year-old young know, girl could never have been Sasha, right? Right. And, and so that's you know, he, he's not that great, right? Because as long as the kids are being killed far enough away, he doesn't care. Apparently, what was the numbers uh, under Obama? He dropped the bomb. It was like every twenty minutes, all eight years, something like that. Um, and I, the only number I could think of off the top of my head is he dropped twenty-six thousand bombs in twenty sixteen alone. So oh, I, don't, I don't know what the totals are that like it's over a hundred thousand over the total of his uh, eight years in office. I mean, in the, in 2016, he dropped 500 bombs on uh, Libya alone. 
So he was definitely racking them up. And, of course, you know, Lockheed Martin, Raytheon, and the rest of them were cashing in the whole time. Uh, the, the only other thing I can mention on the drone war, and then we can move on to the main civil war, is that the United States is currently working with both the UAE and Saudi Arabia and, uh, you know, uh, carrying out anti-terror missions, or at least this is what the U.S. government is saying. And one of the reasons is that is this is significant is the United States is also helping Saudi Arabia and UAE fight, fight a war against the Houthis. And so I, I think there's some often conflation going on. Uh, the United States is maybe masking how uh, much they're assisting the fight against the Houthis by saying that they're counterterrorism missions. Gotcha, gotcha. I think that's all I have on the drone war. Oh, other than that, uh, I think there's reason to question whether the 2001 AUMF would apply to AQAP uh, just because Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula wasn't even formed until 2006. And so we're waging a war against the people in Yemen, which, uh, you know, isn't anywhere near Afghanistan. I, you know, I could zoom back out on my map real quick and point to Afghanistan for everyone, just so you can see how far away these two countries are. Uh, but the point being is that, uh, you know, they're using this authorization to justify this war. And, you know, we're supposed to be a constitutional republic, yet we don't even have the pretense of Congress voting on anything like this. All right, so this has been really good information thus far, but I guess start us off, yeah, how did we get into the Civil War? Yeah, so I guess the big war in Yemen is... Uh, the Yemeni civil war. And this kind of all got rolling in 2011, as I explained with the Arab Spring, and then uh, the transition of power from uh, Salah to Hadi. And then you had a situation where former President Salah uh, had some of the army units, a good portion of Yemen's army was still loyal to him. Yemen isn't the United States, where if you have an election, the whole army moves to the next person elected. I mean, as I said before, Salah was the only leader of United Yemen ever, so a lot of people just went with him. And it turns out that uh, Salah is a Zaidi and went to the north where the Houthis were, who are also, it's a, the Houthis are a political and uh, religious movement uh, of Zaidi Shia that is some more or less Shia. Uh, but it's a Shia that's very close to Sunni Islam. And, and sorry for the simple question. What is the difference between Shiite and Shia? I don't think there is one. I think oh, people okay. just say differently. I, I, I didn't think there was either. I just Hopefully I'm not <laughs> completely wrong about that. I just stubbed my, <laughs> uh, my foot in my mouth. But yeah, I've heard people use it interchangeably, so I always have as well. Okay, great. So anyways, uh, the Zaydis are Shia that are close to the Sunnis. They team up with Sa'ad, uh, Salah, who is also a... Uh, uh, a Zaidi, and they are able to go from the north of Yemen, which is the Zaidi, uh, you know, kind of territorial lands, and take territory all the way to the south of Yemen, uh, to Sana'a. At that point, uh, they, they surround the capital city, and Hadi is forced to flee to south Yemen, and uh, all the way down here to Aden. Now, at this time, the Iranians told the Houthis not to take the capital city. They said, don't go in and set the capital city. Uh, just be happy with the territory you have. But they went and touched Sana'a anyways. And then they chased Hadi all the way down south to Aden and were actually threatening Aden. And this is in 2014. And Hadi fled to Saudi Arabia, where he currently is this day, living in the capital city of Riyadh. Uh, then on March 25th, 
2015, and I think this is maybe uh, maybe the dates of 26. Uh, some people say differently. Either way, Saudi Arabia starts bombing the Houthis in order to try to restore store Hadi as the leader of Yemen. And uh, that's you know really where the civil war gets kicked off. I guess the first and most important thing to say is you know why why do I keep saying that this is a U.S. war if Saudi Arabia is the one doing the bombing? And that's because the United States is providing the weapons to Saudi Arabia to allow them to do this bombing. They're providing Saudi Arabia with mid-air refueling so their jets are able to fly and hover over the cities of northern Yemen for hours at a time, carry out more airstrikes and uh, provide you know different amounts of troop coverage or whatever, provide ground support, and are able to uh, carry out a much more effective air war against the Houthis because the United States is providing mid-air refueling. We're also providing maintenance on their airplanes because Saudi Arabia apparently can't maintain their own airplanes. And we're also providing intelligence, targeting help, and logistical help in waging this air campaign. And you were talking about how things are so bad right now. Like half the hospitals are just gone. Mm-hmm. Yep. All right. So that, yeah, this is the humanitarian crisis of Yemen. And pretty quickly after the war gets going, the international aid organizations start sounding the alarm and they're saying this is going to get really ugly and we need to do something about this. Because like I said, Yemen imports about 90% of its uh, staple foods prior to the war. Uh, Yemen isn't a country that produces a whole lot of oil or anything like that. And it's really an impoverished country already leading up to the war. Of course, uh, Salah, when he was president of Yemen, actually fought several wars against the Houthis in the north, who it may seem confusing, but he then goes and later allies with. So the the country's already devastated by war, right? Uh, You know, there's already bad conditions. Everybody's already poor. And then Saudi Arabia starts bombing the place. Um, Pretty quickly... I think Salah and the Houthis lose all of their air power. And at this point, I'm pretty sure that they don't have any remaining air power whatsoever. And, uh, the, you know, the humanitarian catastrophe gets underway. It's aided by Saudi Arabia's blockade of Yemen, uh, particularly the territories uh, of northern Yemen. A key port in Yemen that provides uh, the imports for about 80% of the people. And 80% of the people do live in the Houthi-controlled areas of Yemen. Even if it looks like Saudi Arabia controls most of the country, they control a pretty small percentage of the actual population. Yeah, because so that's, that's what I was going to say. So just for the people viewing, that red portion on Yemen, that's, that's the Houthi-controlled area. But you're saying actually most of the population of all Yemen lives in that uh, area. Right. Absolutely. So, uh, yeah, with that blockade, uh, medical aid, journalists, food, fuel uh, are unable to get into the country. They're preventing them from getting in. Uh, There's also an airport in the capital city of Sana'a, uh, central-ish, you know, eastern Yemen there, or western Yemen. And um, that's also blocked off. And so now the, uh, the Yemenis don't have any way to get medicine, to get uh, food, to get fuel. And like I said, you know, your 20-hour trip to the hospital is made a hell of a lot more expensive and sometimes impossible if you suddenly run out of uh, fuel because either the prices are skyrocketing or because there's just none to be had in your area. Now, I'm just assuming this, but it's like the Red Sea and the Gulf of Aden. There's just a ton of warships lined up all over, all over there. 
Right. The, so for a long time, I, I really couldn't tell if the United States was directly aiding the Saudi blockade of Yemen. It seems likely to me that they would have to because Saudi Arabia doesn't have a, a brand new Navy or anything like that. It's pretty old and uh, there's not a whole lot of ships. I do think they're at least in, in uh, have made some interest in purchasing some new ships. But anyways, so for that reason, it seemed to me likely that the United States ships are out there enforcing the blockade. In 2016, the Houthis launched a couple ballistic missiles at U.S. ships that were out in, uh, in the Red Sea, I believe. And so the, the evidence seems to be that the United States is helping uh, Saudi Arabia enforce that blockade. And they say they... Uh, you know, enforce the rules of the waterways in that area. And if our allies, Saudi Arabia, are saying that it's illegal to bring uh, food and fuel into the port of Hededa, then I guess that's the law that the United States is enforcing. Wow, it just seems like an impossible situation. I mean, people are just starving. Right. And, and to clarify, that blockade at most times is a commercial blockade, meaning that no commercial goods, even if it's flour, wheat, etc., can't get into the country, but they let humanitarian goods into the country. However, Saudi Arabia bombed the cranes at the port of Hadeda uh, for years, I think until two, the early 2018. Saudi Arabia didn't allow the United States to bring in movable cranes that could be used at the port of Hadeda to at least allow some offloading of ships at that port. They finally allowed those cranes in, but apparently the port's in such bad condition and the cranes are so small, they're they're not super effective. And uh, Yahoo actually published a pretty good article recently uh, saying that right now there's a de facto blockade of Hadeda. In the past, Saudi Arabia has completely blockaded the, the port of Hadeda and said that not they weren't even letting international aid get in. So they were actually telling US, you know, Red Cross ships to turn around and get the hell out. I'm going to quote directly from that Bloomberg article. During the war, the Saudi-led coalition had disrupted food and other supplies coming into Yemen by imposing a naval blockade on ports in the Houthi-controlled north, notably Houdida and Salif, through which about 80% of imports normally were, were 80% of imports normally enter the country. So yeah, that's uh, that pretty much sums it up. Right. And I guess the other thing to touch on is the bombing campaign and what the Saudis have hit in their bombing campaign other than just the roads, bridges, and hospitals because they've bombed factories. And uh, one of the things that I guess Yemen produced was cereal and they had cereal factories, but those have been destroyed, uh, making it much more difficult for people to have jobs and stuff like that. You also have Saudi Arabia bombing uh, schools, uh, government facilities, uh, their water treatment plants, and uh, I guess this could get us into the discussion on the cholera epidemic that broke out last year. Yeah, absolutely. I'm just I'm just looking at this article again, and I noticed this one part: the U.S., U.K., and Israel are among the nations that have imposed blockades during times of war. Under international humanitarian law, blockades are legal if they prevent arms and material from reaching enemy forces. But what you're saying is more than likely we're supplying Saudi Arabia with these same exact weapons. Oh, well, we're supplying Saudi Arabia with much better weapons than anything that the Houthis have. I mean, the Saudis are flying F-15s, uh, you know, armed with laser-guided bombs and blowing up schools and huts in rural Yemen with them. Uh, I'm sure that the cost of the bomb is a lot more than anything most of those bombs end up destroying.
Jesus. Well, yeah, man, I guess we're getting to the end here, but finish it off. Uh, what's going on nowadays? Or maybe if you have any other stories to give us. Yeah, I guess the nowadays part. Well, can we address the uh, arming of uh, the Houthis by Iran? Absolutely, man. Don't don't miss anything that I don't know about. Cover everything. <laughs> okay, so th- this is the big one that has to be addressed. And this is always the excuse for the war is that it, this is just a proxy war in the Middle East between the United or between Saudi Arabia and Iran. Saudi Arabia bats the Yemeni government. Iran bats the Houthis. And, and this simply isn't true that Iran bats the Houthis. Uh, as I said, uh, the Zaydis aren't aren't Shia like the uh, Iranians are. And really, it seems that the only thing that has driven the Houthis to even having sympathies with Iran is that they're both treated poorly by the Americans and by the Saudis. Um, so anyways, uh, there's all these reports that the Houthis uh, are arming the uh, Yemenis. And so I'm going to address the three most uh, cited claims. The first is that there were two ships that were bringing uh, the Houthis weapons from Iran in 2011 and 2013. In one of those cases, the ship was empty. It was an Iranian crew, but the ship was completely empty. In the second case, it seemed like the weapons were actually leaving Yemen and going to Somalia. And uh, if I can move the map here real quick, you see that Yemen's pretty close to Somalia. And so it, it would make sense of this. Also, Yemen is one of the most armed countries in the world as far as it goes with small arms. I think maybe they're only third to the United States and Iraq in that case. Right. So imagine that maybe the Houthis are a little bit like Texans or something like that. And so it's not like they necessarily need Iran to ship them a bunch of AK-47s or anything like that. Uh, The other claims are made by Nikki Haley at the UN saying that Iran is providing the Houthi with missiles. This simply isn't true. Weapons expert Scott Ritter explained that the uh, Yemenis are firing a variation of Scud missiles that were sold to South Yemen by the Soviets and by the North Koreans in the 1980s when North and South and Yemen were divided and it was Cold War times and this is what was going on. So what the Houthis are doing is they're cutting up the missiles and they're converting them and they're making them into Yemeni-designed ballistic missiles. Um, And of course the Houthis got these weapons through Saleh because when he became president, I'm guessing he just didn't leave his, uh, you know, all of his uh, Scud missiles laying around, right? So he had the missiles. And what happened with Salah? Because he died. <laughs> right, right. So uh, December 7th, maybe? Uh, late November, early December of 2017, Salah cuts a deal with the Saudis and stabs the Houthis in the back. And it looks like maybe there's actually a conclusion to the Yemen war here. Because if uh, you know everybody is okay with Salah retaining power, then you know maybe we're able to move past this. Maybe... You know, he beats the Houthis back and everybody goes back to the way things were in 2010 or something like that. I don't know. But anyways, it turns out that the tribal fighters uh, didn't take the side of Salah and then the Houthis went and killed him. And they killed all of his relatives that would remain loyal to him. And then uh, apparently, if you were a Salah supporter, some of them did go to the Hadi Bat government, but I think most of them just joined up the Houthi movement under the Houthis. And I, I think the Houthi movement in, in Yemen has taken on a little bit of an anti-Saudi uh, coalition, just as much as a uh, you know, Houthi, you know that, that we agree with the Houthis. Does that make sense? Yes, it, it totally does. I mean, it's just. 
a whole big mess over there. So, I mean, you think even if the war ended, they still have these import problems. Like they still got to get all these goods. And I, I don't know. It's just so much going on at once. Well, what would, what would you ideally like to see happen? Because you know about everything that's going on. So I guess the first thing is that you got to end the drone war. As we discussed before, it's just absolutely horrific on the Yemeni people. Uh, the, the second thing that you got to do is you got to end the support for Saudi's war against Yemen. This means that Saudi Arabia may be able to wage a little bit of a war against Yemen still. But as we've seen, Saudi Arabia is pretty unwilling to put any of their own troops actually in, in Yemen. And in fact, I think they have a bunch of Pakistanis guarding the border. Because a few times, uh, as you can see here, for those of you who are looking at the map, the Houthi-controlled areas of Yemen actually border Saudi Arabia. So the, the Yemenis at time have been able to cross the border and attach Saudi positions on the other side. And like I said, I think those are actually Pakistanis down there now guarding the border. Maybe uh, something like 2,600 Pakistani troops are in Saudi Arabia. Um, where else was I going with this? Oh man, we've covered so much here. <laughs> I'm gonna link to uh, I'm gonna link to Foreign Policy Focus episode 159. I'm gonna link to that Will Porter article you just mentioned a few minutes ago, where he talks about you know the crazy, insane, long trips you have to get to a hospital. Gonna link to Live UA map. Can you think of anything else I can link to, Kyle? Um, I, I think that about does it. Uh, oh, I have a little thing on immersionnews.com. Y'all could check out here um, if you click on Yemen. You can see all the news stories I got here saved up on Yemen. So if you want to look back and do a little bit of reading, you can find that there. All right. Awesome. Well, we're actually going to have you back on tomorrow to finish out the week. Was it Libya we were going to discuss tomorrow? Uh, yeah, we could. Libya. I mean, there's a lot left. You know, yeah. Libya, Pakistan, do, et cetera. We, but we could talk about, uh, you know, whatever you want. We could probably do Libya half of it and the other half, you know, finish off just like an overview of like how this all connects. But man, it's been a really, really great week so far. So thanks a bunch, Kyle, and uh, we'll see you again tomorrow. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Hey everyone, please like, follow, donate, subscribe, and share. Any donations will be used to reach more people.